Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. This time we are looking at From Here to Eternity. This was originally released in the United States on August 28th, 1953. It was directed by Fred Zittiman, and Daniel Teradash has screenplay credit adapting the novel written by James Jones. The primary cast include Burt Lancaster, Montgomery Clift, Deborah Kerr, Donna Reed, and Frank Sinatra, although there are others that I'm sure we will be discussing as we go through, but those are the five that are featured prominently in the opening credits and the promotion for the material. So reading the plot summary generously offered by the authors at Wikipedia, in 1941, Bugler and career soldier Private Robert E. Lee Pruitt transfers from Fort Shafter to a rifle company at Schofield Barracks on the island of Oahu. Because Pruitt is also a boxer, Captain Dana Dynamite Holmes wants him on his regimental team. Pruitt refuses because he stopped fighting after he blinded a friend. Holmes makes Pruitt's life miserable and ultimately orders First Sergeant Milton Warden to prepare a court-martial. Warden successfully suggests doubling Pruitt's company punishment as an alternative. Pruitt is hazed by other non-commissioned officers and is supported only by his close friend, Private Angelo Maggio. Pruitt and Maggio join a social club where Pruitt becomes attracted to Loreen. At the club, Maggio gets into an argument with Stockade Sergeant Judson. Later, at a local bar, Judson provokes Maggio, and the two nearly come to blows before Warden intervenes. Warden, despite warnings from another sergeant, risks prison after beginning an affair with Holmes' wife Karen. Karen's marriage to Holmes is fraught with his unfaithfulness, which was exacerbated after the stillbirth of a child and Karen's subsequent infertility. Karen encourages Warden to become an officer, which would enable her to divorce Holmes and marry him. Maggio is sentenced to the stockade after walking off guard duty and getting drunk. This results in harsh treatment at the hands of Judson. Pruitt discovers Lorraine's name is really Alma, and her goal is to make enough money at the club to return to the mainland and live a proper life. Pruitt tells her his career is in the military, and the two wonder whether they have a future together. A sergeant named Galovich, who is a member of Holmes' boxing team, picks a fight with Pruitt. The fight is reported to Holmes, who observes it without intervening. Pruitt gets the best of Galovich, and Holmes learns Galovich started the fight, but Holmes issues no punishment. Higher-ranking officers observe Holmes' conduct and force his resignation in lieu of a court-martial. Maggio escapes the stockade after a brutal beating from Judson. His injuries are aggravated during his escape, and he dies in Pruitt's arms. Pruitt seeks revenge against Judson, and the two stab each other in a back alley. Judson dies from his wounds, and Pruitt, severely injured, goes absent without leave and stays with Loreen. Warden covers for his absence. The captain that replaces Holmes demotes Galovich and affirms boxing will not be used as a pathway to promotion. Warden tells Karen about Pruitt. Karen tells Warden that Holmes' resignation is forcing them back stateside. 
The warden divulges he is not interested in becoming an officer. Karen walks away with both realizing their relationship has ended. The Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. Warden keeps his head in the chaos. That night, Pruitt attempts to rejoin his company, but he is killed when he refuses to halt. Warden identifies him as a good soldier, but a hardhead. Karen and Lorene coincidentally stand next to each other on the ship that is taking them to the mainland. Karen throws her lays into the sea, wondering if she will ever return to Hawaii. Lorene tells Karen she is not returning and that her fiancé died heroically during the Pearl Harbor attack and was awarded a silver star, none of which is true. She names Pruitt as the fiancé and looks at his bugle mouthpiece which she is holding. Karen recognizes the name, but stays silent. Aside from... Some things being out of sequence to summarize complete plot threads in one sentence instead of two or three, I'd say that's a fairly accurate summary. It is. Yeah. Anything key that you would say is missing? I, I don't know how I would summarize it, but the, the plot point about whether Warden should become an officer or not is a much bigger plot point than the synopsis would indicate. His whole relationship with Karen hinges on it. Yeah, that is a massive point, and he's he is a very opposed to the idea of becoming an officer, saying he's always hated them and wouldn't want to become them. And this is even after he and Pruitt have a drunken discussion when Pruitt's going, no, you would be a good officer. So, yeah, Warden seems to be concerned that he'd turn out to be like Holmes, which is obviously not something he would want, because you know, they say in the trailer for this, based on the most controversial novel of all our time, and it gives, you know, the names of the cast over the military marching background, and then, yeah, just has that image of Burt Lancaster and Deborah Kerr kissing on the beach. So it was an interesting trailer, but, you know, as we were getting ready to watch this, I was saying, oh yeah, this is the next one, and showed my wife the trailers, because I wasn't sure what the movie was even about. This is my first exposure to it, and watching the trailer, she's like, okay, that's it. We still don't know what this is about. I was in a similar boat. I've always been aware of this movie, but I had never seen it before. Because my least favorite genre of film is probably romantic drama. And, you know, you mentioned it being in the trailer. The making out on the beach scene in the surf is probably one of the more iconic film scenes. It's been parodied over and over again. Whenever TCM does history of film trailers, it's in there, you know. So it's really easy to think that this would be something akin to maybe an affair to remember. But it's it's a really odd film and odd in a good way. I it's a war noir, maybe, is kind of the best way to think of it, or military noir, mm-hmm. which is not a subgenre that you would think of. No, you. I, it was the same thing. That image of them on the beach was the one thing I knew to expect. I think the first time I remember even hearing about this movie was in Weekend at Bernie's, when one character says, says to the other, like, girl... Sand, surf, ever seen here to eternity, Rich? Like, <laughs> that's what it, that's what it twigged to. So I was, yeah, I was expecting the romance aspect to be 
a much stronger part. And then to find out that that particular relationship coupling, they're not even the main characters. No. Right? I mean, Burt Lancaster may be top build, but Pruitt is the, the main character in this. And then they don't even end up together. Spoilers, but we've already spoiled that with the plot summary. Like, you know, we've got, I would say, one main male lead. And then that that would be Montgomery Cliff's character as Prue. And then I would say, you know, Warden, Karen Holmes, Alma Orlarine, and Angelo Maggio are the next most prominent characters. And then Philip Ober, IMDb, has him right after those top five build as Captain Dana Holmes. But no, there, yeah, there's a much broader cast and there are more plot threads going on because each of our male leads has his own story. Angelo Maggio has his story where he's, you know, he seems to be uh, a guy from a well-to-do family. There's some comments that, you know, he's the member of the social club. Money's not necessarily an issue for him. I almost get the impression that maybe he signed up for the military more to go to Hawaii right. than anything else. Whereas, you know, Pruitt and Warden, they are military men where Pruitt is, you know, the staff sergeant. Or sorry, Milton is the the sergeant. Pruitt was corporal till he got busted down to private because someone else got a position that he deserved. And then the the female stars do kind of have their own plot threads, but as was not uncommon in the 1950s, especially for war films in the 1950s, their character arcs are in service of the men more than in service of themselves. Karen's got a little more autonomy. So, that, well, you know, the, the, I would say in both cases, it's they're better than average for their own agency and autonomy, but it's still about them choosing which man they want in their lives with almost no career path discussions, whereas all the men, it's career path, and for two out of three also, which women they want in their lives. So yeah, there's there's a lot going on. I I don't dispute it necessarily. It's, it's funny how Hollywood did billing at this time. You know, you mentioned Burt Lancaster's top build. Uh, Lancaster had the most extensive filmography at the time this came out, but um, M- Montgomery Clift was probably the more renowned. And I'm, I'm not trying to take anything away from Burt Lancaster, but peeling back the curtain a little bit and preparing for the podcast, typically I'll watch the film that we're going to cover, and then I'll either watch the nominated films that we're going to cover or the high, the most popular ones for the year according to Letterboxd, or some mix thereof. And this is the first time Burt Lancaster has popped up into the rotation. Montgomery Clift has had a much smaller filmography, but up to this point, he's already been nominated for Best Actor or Best Supporting Actor twice. So he had done Red River with John Wayne, which he wasn't nominated for, then the heiress with Olivia de Havilland, which he was, and A Place in the Sun, he was also nominated for a Best Actor Academy Award. So prior to this, he had done four films, and three out of the four he's been, prior to this, he's done three films, 
and two out of the three he's already been nominated for. So I, I think he was probably the more accomplished or renowned out of the two male leads. Yeah, I would agree. And then Frank Sinatra next, while he certainly was an actor, I think he was probably still best known as a singer. And then running through some of the other cast, we've got actors like Ernest Borgnine. He is Sergeant Fatso Judson, the abusive stockade warden. We've got Jack Warden as Captain Buckley. We've got Arthur Keegan as Treadwell. That's not a name I recognized, but I found it curious that when I checked his IMDb, he's only been in two movies. This is his first, and the next one will be our subject next month. Okay. A two-movie filmography where both won Best Picture. So I'm surprised people didn't try to hire him more as a good luck charm after that. And of course, with the female leads, it's hard for me to wrap my head around Donna Reed getting second billing to Deborah Kerr. While Deborah Kerr also has a nice filmography, Donna Reed was in It's a Wonderful Life and had her own TV series. But It's a Wonderful Life, I realize, hadn't caught on with the masses at this point. It would be a few years before they allowed the copyright to lapse, which has since been renewed. You know, I, I agree. We're we're still five years away from her TV series, but she still had a fairly extensive filmography up to this point. Yeah. yeah and I guess in looking at Deborah Kerr, she'd already been in Black Narcissus, but her other major roles are An Affair to Remember with Cary Grant and The King and I, both of which come later. Those are 56 and 57. Yeah, she was predominantly in British films prior to this, I believe. She had done some Powell and Pressburger films like, well, you had mentioned Black Narcissus, but she was also in The Life and Times of Colonel Wimp. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, King Solomon's Mines and Quo Vadis are also in there. And she was Portia in the 1953 adaptation of Julius Caesar, which we'll be bringing up again today since it was another Best Picture nomination. Quofadi and King Solomon's Mines were both Best Picture nominees. Neither of them won, but they were both nominees. And they both play, I mean, I'll jump into the female leads a little bit, and then we can go back to the guys if you want. Granted, we've mentioned things that they're more known for that have come after this. But if you only know Deborah Carr from... Um, an Affair to Remember, or Donna Reed from It's a Wonderful Life, or The Donna Reed Show, they are playing completely against type in this film. Yes, absolutely. That's actually part of the way Donna Reed's character is described on the DVD package I have here. It highlights the fact that she's a not-so-wholesome club hostess, so in a career-defining role, because it is quite unlike her role in It's a Wonderful Life and probably unlike the role you're going to see in any network television lead from this decade. It was in, originally intended to be a prostitute and um, because of the code and whatnot, they kind of modified it to where she's more of a hostess at a it's a it's kind of like the USO club but it's a members only USO club is kind of the way to think of it. Yeah, and honestly, I just watching it, it never occurred to me that she wasn't a prostitute. I just felt that 
that's as far as they could go. The idea that she was just a hostess, it just, yeah, to me it was just that's all it was. Was just, this is as far as the code allows them to go, but that's really what it was. So when the hostesses sometimes have private spaces for the VIP guests and, you know, the her boss came up with the name that she should be using. Yeah, that, and anyway, that is absolutely the way I read her role. Is this your first exposure to Montgomery Cliff? I think it may be. I'll check his IMDb. This is the, the first memorable one, but, you know, looking at his IMDb top four known for, I haven't seen any of them. He's he's someone whose films I recommend checking out. He's a contemporary of Brando's okay. and uh, is often kind of overshadowed by Brando. But where Brando kind of, where Brando kind of had more Palooka looks, for lack of a better word, Cliff was more kind of classically handsome. So he plays a lot of. They could very easily be troubled pretty boy roles but he brings a lot of nuance and, and depth to them you know you you've got films like the heiress where he, he's courting uh, olivia de Havilland who has money and he's poor and he does a great job of walking that line of you're not really sure if he's into the relationship for um the money or if he really does love her and then in a place in the sun uh, he play he plays someone who settles for a relationship ends up getting a girl pregnant and then lucks into a relationship with the woman that he wanted to be with all along and suddenly he's juggling two lives and it's a really interesting film i i think back in I think he lost that year to Brando for Streetcar Named Desire, but I could have just as easily seen the Academy going the other way. He has a lot of really powerful performances. Yeah, looking at his filmography, he's only got 18 acting credits to his name, including a TV movie. But going through it, I think I've seen him in two films. So there's From Here to Eternity, and I have seen I Confess. It's been a while, so I didn't connect it, but that's... uh, Hitchcock film, also released in 1953. He's Father Michael Logan, which is, it's a really good ethical and morality play. So in that one, he is a priest and a man comes into the confessional and confesses to murder. And then the police sees in the news that somebody else has been arrested for that crime and is likely going to get the death penalty for it. So then he has to solve that ethical quandary of what happens, right? Because he can't, if he breaks the seal of the confessional, that's a sin on his part. If he doesn't, an innocent man dies. Well, and he he plays a similar character here. Again, maybe this synopsis doesn't do the strongest job of conveying it, but Captain Holmes is not focusing on being a good officer. He thinks his road to promotion is I'm going to have the best boxing team on the base or in the army. So he has literally promoted all of his non-coms based off of their boxing ability. And when Pruitt refuses to fight because of this accident that he had in the past, 
he just lets them have it, you know, in terms of you get the typical, they're training and they're crawling through the mud, but the sergeant with Pruitt is either putting his foot on his back or purposefully splashing the mud up in his face, you know. They send him on hikes and runs all day, all night, and do everything they can to try and break him. Yeah, and he just won't break. And even to the point where in when he's scrubbing the floors by the boxing ring, one of the boxers kicks over a spittoon, one possibly by accident, the second definitely on purpose while he was cleaning up the first one. And Holmes demands that Pruitt apologize to the officer, and Holmes, uh, Pruitt says, no, I think he needs to apologize to me. And even maintains that position after being punished, which is what was going to lead to the court-martial. The, the only thing, really, that breaks Pruitt is not anything that Holmes does. It's Maggiano getting beaten to death. Because it, it's it, Pruitt has a very definite sense of honor. I am a soldier. I am in this for the long haul. I belong to the military. But I have this friend and this brother in arms, and I also have a duty to him. And his duty to Maggiano supplanted his duty to the army, but his love of Alma comes below that duty to the army. Mm -hmm. Even though he's asking her to marry him, it's just understand that you'll be marrying a soldier. And I, I know we're going to be talking about him in a couple of months. I was surprised by Ernest Borgnine in this, you know, just based off of when we grew up. To me, he's Cabby from Escape to New York and his role in Airwolf. You, you don't think of him as kind of the, I mean, I completely can see it, but you don't think of him as kind of this abusive bruiser. Yeah, he had the range. So as you said, in two months' time, we'll be talking about him and Marty. I remember him from, I mean, probably going to disturb some people, but I know him from Gattaca and from his guest spot on The Simpsons, although... On The Simpsons, he was clearly a celebrity, and that's the way it was handled. That was half the joke. I don't know if you remember that particular episode, but he was the mm -hmm. extremely capable scout leader that was competing with Homer. You know, they're getting it going in, and Homer's like, oh, don't worry, I stole the pocket knife from that Borgnine guy. And then Ernest Borgnine is ready to defend all the other troopers from a grizzly bear with his trusty pocket knife, which isn't there. But obviously, they all come out okay in the end anyway. Like, So, yeah, this is. Probably his least lovable role that I've seen him in. They they like to have him as that really likable guy. It's like the almost like a father or mentor figure to the leads. That's where most of his work comes in. But yeah, clearly not all of it. Jack Warden also appears here. Probably his greatest films probably Twelve Angry Men. You know he had a show in the. Um, 80s called Crazy as a Fox that my dad watched, and I remember him from that. Here, he's one of the few allies that Pruitt has. Like, not everyone is out to get Pruitt per se, but everyone has to follow the orders that they get. And Warden as Corporal Buckley kind of falls into that category of keep your head down. Try and stay out of um, the captain's way, but I'm not here to make your life any more miserable. 
Yeah, so when he's the one responsible for making Pruitt go on yet another insanely long hike with gear on his back, he's the one that's, you know, when they're out of sight, he'll stop, offer him a cigarette, let him take a break. So he, yeah, he doesn't do much to stop the abuse, but he does everything he can not to contribute to it and to take the edge off it. And Sinatra, Sinatra impressed me in this. I mean, I knew Sinatra could act, but Sinatra, at a certain point, Sinatra's in that stratosphere of entertainers to where they have a certain persona, and at a certain point, all they're doing is playing that persona. George Burns, later in his year, in his last couple of decades, was that way. You know, he was always playing George Burns. He wasn't playing anybody else. I'd argue Pacino, for the past decade, has been playing a caricature of Pacino. But here, Sinatra really brings it as Maggio. Yeah. Again, I was impressed. And he had a reputation of being tough to deal with. He didn't like doing more than one or two takes. So I think that could be part of the reason he is not as well-known as an actor, because... Some of his roles are hit and miss, right? Either he got what the director was going for or he didn't. So instead of working with the director, it's just, no, you've got it. And that's all you're going to get. Which is why there is a famously out-of-focus scene in the original Manchurian Candidate, because he just refused to film it again. Because they'd already done it once. But yeah, and this is a movie where you wouldn't necessarily have put that together. Because however many takes he did, what he did was done well. So they got what they needed during those takes. Other actors people might recognize, continuing our streak, we've had about a four-film streak now of um, actors who were leads on The Adventures of Superman being in a Best Film um, winner. George Reeves has an uncredited role as Sergeant Malin Stark. Again, he's not... Um, one of the ones who's abusing Pruitt, his role is more confidant and advisor to Warden and Warden's relationship with Kieran. And then Claude Aikens as Sergeant Baldy Dome. He is one of the abusive um, non-coms. Claude Aikens is probably best known to folks who watch TV in the late 70s, early 80s, from BJ and the Bear and its latest, later spinoff, Sheriff Lobo, where he played the title character, Sheriff Lobo. Yeah, he also had a recurring role in the first season of Murder, She Wrote. So, shall we go through all the nominees and winners in all categories for the year? Sure. All right. So, this ceremony was held on March 25th, 1954, in the Archaeopantages Theater, hosted by Donald O'Connor and Friedrich March. So, finally some singing in the rain loving, getting into the Academy Awards there with Donald O'Connor as host. So, Best Picture clearly went to From Here to Eternity, beating out Julius Caesar, The Robe, Roman Holiday, and Shane. Best Director went to Fred Zinnemann for From Here to Eternity, beating out Charles Walters and Lily, William Wyler for Roman Holiday, George Stevens for Shane, and Billy Wilder for Stalag 17. Best Actor went to William Holden for Stalag 17. Other nominees were Marlon Brando for Julius Caesar, Richard Burton for The Robe, Montgomery Clift, and Burt Lancaster, both for From Here to Eternity. Best Actress went to Audrey Hepburn for Rowan Holiday, beating out Leslie Caron for Lily, Ava Gardner for Magambo, 
Deborah Kerr for From Here to Eternity, and Maggie McNamara for The Moon is Blue. Best Supporting Actor went to Frank Sinatra for his role in this film. He beat out Eddie Albert and Roman Holiday, Brandon DeWild in Shane, Jack Palance in Shane, and Robert Strauss in Stalag 17. Best Supporting Actress went to Donna Reed for this film, From Here to Eternity, beating out Grace Kelly for Magambo, Geraldine Page for Hondo, Marjorie Rambo for Torch Storm, and Thelma Ritter for Pick Up on South Street. Best Screenplay, From Here to Eternity, beating out The Cruel Sea, Lily, Roman Holiday, and Shane. Best Story and Screenplay went to Titanic, beating out The Bandwagon, The Desert Rats, The Naked Spur, and Take the High Ground. Best Story went to Roman Holiday, beating Above and Beyond, Captain's Paradise, Hondo, and Little Fugitive. Best Documentary went to The Living Desert, beating The Conquest of Everest and A Queen is Crowned. Best Documentary Short Subject was The Alaskan Eskimo, beating The Living City, Operation Blue Jay, They Planted a Stone in the Word. The Best Live Action Short Subject One Reel went to Overture to the Merry Wives of Windsor, beating out Christ Among the Primitives, Herring Hunt, Joy of Living, and We Water Wonders. Best Live Action Short Subject Two Reel went to Bear Country, beating out Ben and Me, Return to Glenaskill, Vesuvius Express, and Winter Paradise. Best Short Subject Cartoons went to Toot Whistle Plunk and Boom, another Walt Disney. He's been Disney's been cleaning up the short subjects in documentary here. Yes. Everything of those except that overture so far has been Disney. People don't often know that most of Disney's Academy Awards came from his documentaries instead of his animation. Yep, and by looking at some of these titles, I think part of that is was largely he was the only game in town. But yeah, for the cartoons, it was Toot Whistle Plunk and Boom beating out Christopher Crumpet from A to Z, Rugged Bear and The Telltale Heart. Best music score of a dramatic or comedy picture went to Lily, beating Above and Beyond, From Here to Eternity, Julius Caesar, and This is Cinerama. Best scoring of a musical picture went to Call Me Madam, beating The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, The Bandwagon, Calamity Jane, and Kiss Me Kate. Best song, Secret Love from Calamity Jane, beat out songs from The Moon is Blue, Small Town Girl, Miss Sadie Thompson, and The Caddy. Best sound recording went to From Here to Eternity beating Calamity Jane, Knights of the Round Table, The Mississippi Gambler, and The War of the Worlds. Best Art Direction in Black and White went to Julius Caesar, beating Martin Luther, The President's Day, Roman Holiday, and Titanic. The Best Art Direction Color went to The Robe, beating Knights of the Round Table, Lily, The Story of Free Lives, and Young Bess. Best Cinematography, Black and White, again, From Here to Eternity, beating The Four Poster, Julius Caesar, Martin Luther, and Roman Holiday. Best Color Cinematography went to Shane, beating All the Brothers Were Valiant, Beneath the Twelve Mile Reef, Lily and the Robe. Best Black and White Costume Design went to Roman Holiday and Edith Head. She wins so many of these awards. Beating The Actress, Dream Wife, From Here to Eternity and the President's Lady. Best Costume Design Color went to The Robe, beating The Bandwagon, Call Me Madam, How to Marry a Millionaire, and Young Bess. And then finally, Best Film Editing went to From Here to Eternity, beating out Crazy Legs, The Moon is Blue, Roman Holiday, and The War of the Worlds. We had honorary awards to Pete Smith for his witty and pungent observations on the American scene in his series of Pete Smith specialties. 20th Century Fox won an award for developing Cinemascope. Joseph Breen for his conscientious, open-minded, dignified management of the Motion Picture Production Code. 
Bell & Howard Company for their pioneering and basic achievements in advancement of the motion picture industry. And War of the Worlds won for Best Special Effects. George Stevens won the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award. And Henri Chrétien won an Academy Award of Merit for Cinemascope Contributions. In the end, From Here to Eternity was nominated 13 times. Uh, Rowan Holiday was 10 nominations. Lily and Shane had six each. Julius Caesar and the Robe had five each. And then there's some with three and two. And for the winners, From Here to Eternity won eight awards, tying the record previously set by Gone with the Wind. And then Rowan Holiday took three and the Robe took two. So just a couple of comments. We're going to have to keep our eye on some of the short subjects. I'm sure they're getting the winners correct. Um, but I'm not sure that they're always correct about the nominees. You know, um, I'm, uh, was it Neighbors was the Canadian film that we were like, why in the world would that be nominated there last time? Yes, it was listed in the documentary category. Yeah, they got under Best Live Action Short Subject 2 reel, Ben and Me. And then it links to the Disney film, Ben and Me, which is not live action. It's animated. So I'm guessing that either the Wikipedia link's pointing to the wrong thing or that wasn't really nominated because I can't see the Academy making that kind of a mistake. And for a lot of the technical awards, the black and white and color really seems to be letting them have their cake and eat it too in terms of, at, at least this year, you see a lot of splits of, we will give one to a period film and one to a modern film. One to a period film and one to a modern film. So when you have things like best costume design, you don't have Edith Head's more, a lot, um, more modern urban designs from something like Roman Holiday really competing with you know, the more lavish period costumes of the robe. I mean, there are some mixes within some of the categories, but like when you look at costume design, you've got mostly modern films there. You have more period pieces under the column category, and I just found that an interesting split this year that one would go to a more modern design aesthetic for either black for black and white, and then the color for that year would go to a more period piece. I just found that interesting. Uh, before we do the comparison to the Golden Globes and to the historical ratings, how do you feel about these winners? So from here to eternity versus Julius Caesar, the Robe, Roman Holiday, and Shane. I'm good with it. From here to eternity has more complex layers, and it's they're all handled extremely well. I I haven't seen... Julius Caesar, I opted to watch How to Marry a Millionaire instead. But I, having seen all of the other nominees, they're all fine films. But from here to eternity, you're really getting a lot more, you know, from your two hours than you are from those other films. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. I haven't seen Julius Caesar or The Robe, and I haven't seen Roman Holiday or Shane since I was a teenager. But I remember thinking they were fine, but they didn't really grip me. The The thing I remember most about Shane is the story Michael J. Fox tells about it, because 
you know, they were saying, well, you must be a big star. They've got apple crates on set for you to stand on to hide how short you are. And Michael Zier Fox says, well, no, anytime I start feeling like that, I think about Shane because the lead actor in Shane was so short that they also needed to, to hide Alan Ladd's height. But the way they did it in Shane was by digging trenches for everyone else to walk in. So if you pay attention in Shane, right, when they're in the saloon, for example, there, people will wait for others to go by instead of just stepping around. It's because they couldn't step around without getting out of the trench that they were walking in. And you never see the floor. So that's how they hit Alan Ladd's height. But yeah, from what I've seen, this this is a really good movie. And I have no issues whatsoever with it taking on the top award. You know, Shane's a really good Western. Roman Holiday's a great r- romantic film. Uh, you know, Audrey Hepburn owns the screen from the moment she's on it. I think Roman Holiday survives on the list where it does one part because of Audrey Hepburn. And then the ending was a little bit unusual for a romance film. I mean, it's not a tragedy and the leads don't get together at the end. And the robe was fine for what it was. I enjoyed Richard Burton in it, but it just didn't have the nuance that From Here to Eternity had. So, let's just run through the comparison uh, with the Golden Globes here. So this was the year of the 11th Golden Globe Award ceremony. And for this one, they, the Best Motion Picture Drama went to The Robe. Uh, best Actor in a Drama went to Spencer Tracy for The Actress. Best Actress in a Drama went to Audrey Hepburn for Roman Holiday. Best Actor for a Motion Picture Comedy or Musical went to David Niven for The Moon is Blue. Best Actress was Ethel Merman for Call Me Madam. Best Performance for an Actor in a Supporting Role went to Frank Sinatra for From Here to Eternity. And Best Actress in a Supporting Role was Grace Kelly for Magambo. Best Director for Motion Picture went to Fred Zinnemann from Here to Eternity. Best Screenplay was Lily Hellendeutsch. Best Documentary was A Queen is Crowned. The Henrietta Award was Alan Ladd together with Robert Taylor and Marilyn Monroe, the world film favorites. Special Achievement went to Walt Disney for The Living Desert. The Cecil B. DeMille Award went to Daryl F. Zanuck. Promoting International Understanding went to Little Boy Lost, directed by George Seaton. New Star of the Year was a three-way tie between Richard Egan, Steve Forrest, and Hugh O'Brien. New Actress Star of the Year, another three-way tie, Pat Crawley, Bella Darby, and Barbara Rush. Honor Award went to Jack Cummings for being producer at MGM for 30 years, and Guy Madison for Best Western Star. And going through it, Wikipedia has the Best Motion Picture Drama, but it doesn't seem to have Best Motion Picture Musical or Comedy, which has been a nominated category in the past. So I'll just quickly do some research and figure out if I could find that on the Golden Globes website. While you're looking that up, I'm finding it interesting that this year, with the exception of Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actress, the Golden Globe winner isn't in the nominee list. So like uh, the Spencer Tracy was not nominated for Best Actor this year. I'm just kind of scrolling through. With the exception of Zimmerman and Audrey Hepburn, did you say Sinatra won Best Supporting Actor? I did, yes. Okay. So there were 
three cases where for the major awards for the Golden Globes agreed with the Oscars this year, director, actress, and supporting actor. They pick a different nominated supporting actress in motion picture, but the actor winner wasn't one of the nominees this year. And going through the Golden Globe, their homepage, Mm -hmm. the best picture musical or comedy this year went to With a Song in My Heart. I just have to check. That's listed as 1953. I need to see if that's 1953 releases or if that's the the 19... Okay, yeah, hang on. That was the that was the ceremony in 1953. I need the 1954 winner. Best actor. I'm okay. scrolling through the official Golden Globes releases. They don't have a winner in the musical or comedy category this year. Hmm. So it appears the the Wikipedia is either complete or at least as complete as the official Golden Globe homepage. Do you think Lancaster should have been under supporting actor instead of actor. Um, I, I, you could make a case for that, but while he wasn't the primary lead, he was prominent enough that I am okay with him in either category. So, and they may have had a hard time billing him as a supporting actor because there are some stars who just wouldn't take it at that point. And as we said, he was top billed. Sure. So there, there may have been some politics in that decision as well. But he was, I would say his plot line was the second most prominent after Pruitt. Okay. I, I, I need to watch Stalag 17. Uh, I'm just looking at the nominees and based off of what I've seen. You know, we've often debated, does it hurt an actor's chances if they're sharing nominations with someone else from the same film? Yeah, I haven't seen it myself. So, And this for a movie that won this many awards. Apparently, Jason Jones was not... Or James Jones, sorry. The novelist whose work it was based on was not happy with how sanitized it was. The Donna Reed's character, Lorene, was absolutely a prostitute in the novel. The miscarriage that... There was no miscarriage leading to Karen Holmes' infertility. In the novel, she had actually gotten an STD from her husband that led to her infertility as a result of his infidelity. The IMDb trivia page lists a lot more of these points, but yeah, the the movie, as controversial as it would have been with things like that, Kiss on the Beach I think might be prominent and was banned from some promotional material because it was an extramarital affair. It went much further in the book. They had to walk a fine line. I mean, none of the points that you've mentioned were military in nature, but this is one of those films that needed the Army support, and yet the film, to a certain extent, was trying to criticize the Army. And they had to walk that fine line of making sure that, uh, on the one hand, they tried to make the captain appear as a lone bad apple, right? Mm-hmm. But then they go all in with Ernest Borgnine's um, Judson. Uh, so they... I understand the criticism, and I understand the balancing act that they had to make to get it past the censors and to get the support of the organizations that they ne- needed to make the film at all. 
because some of the film in the um, Pearl Harbor sequence is filmed from Pearl Harbor. It is. And I also was actually quite impressed with the, the subtlety that they did building up to that. Right. Uh, a lot of other movies would, they would try to foreshadow that a lot more prominently. Whereas this, it just starts with 1941. And that's the only date they give at the start of the film. There are some references as time elapses that, well, the boxing championship are December 12th. But then they only start to to bring it home the day before the attack. There is just a scene where where Milton Warden is on the phone. And he just leans against a wall next to a calendar that says it's December 6th. And then later on, someone just a couple minutes later, Karen passes a directional street sign that says Pearl Harbor is eight miles this way. And that's it. So you, until the attack happens, if you don't already know the history, you'd be as surprised as the characters when it starts to come down. And they, they did the, a great job of not making the characters omniscient. There's a great little bit to where right before the base gets fired on, Someone sees the planes, but of course, you know, a plane's how high up in the air. You're not going to instantly see the markings. And they're like, oh, the guys over at, you know, X airfield must be fooling around this morning or doing whatever. And then the plane starts shooting on the base. Mm-hmm. It was well done. Um, so shall we go through how history remembers the nominees? Sure. So if we look at the IMDb listings... Dobiga Zahim or Zamin is the highest rated film of the year, followed by Ugetsu Tokyo Story. The the highest rated English language film of the year is The Wages of Fear, followed by Stalag 17. And then number six, again with that same rating we've done before with a minimum of 1,000 votes for a feature film, Roman Holiday is the top rated of the nominees. The other nominees, Shane comes in at 13, and From Here to Eternity is 15. Monsieur Hulot's Holiday is number 16, which is a a French film that's worth checking out. Um, If you are a fan of Mr. Bean, check up the Monsieur Hulot movies to see where most of those bits were stolen from. Peter Pan is notable at number 25, and Julius Caesar at 26. I Confess comes in at 27, and... Uh, we got Gentlemen Prefer Blondes at 36, War of the Worlds at 37, Kiss Me Kate is 42, House of Wax comes in at 44, Titanic at 49, and that's just the top 50. So the robe is on the list, but it's not in the top 50 here. I probably could keep hunting for it, but oh, there it is at number 72 for the year, despite being the Golden Globe's number one pick. So at least IMDb users today would seem to put Roman Holiday at number one, and this is four out of five. The uh, letterboxed ratings, again, have our Tokyo Story, Wages of Fear, and Ugetsu as the top three, and Roman Holiday is the highest rated nomination at the fifth of the year. We have The Big Heat, Stalag 17, Pickup on South Street did well. In both of them, Little Fugitive, The Bandwagon. But of the nominees, the Letterboxd readers or viewers actually put this second. So Roman Holiday comes in above, but just Roman Holiday. 
Shane comes in next and then yeah then we have I confess and that's it on that first page of 72 results it's got good ratings on both sites mm-hmm. so the IMDB score is 7.6 out of 10 the letterbox score is 3.7 out of 10 where actually the mode average so the most most common rating for it is a four so yeah I this is one of the years where I, I think the difference between Roman Holiday, Shane, and From Here to Eternity is just going to boil down to what genre do you prefer? Because they are all well-made representatives of their genre. Right? If you like the romantic movies, you're probably going to go with Roman Holiday. If you like the westerns, you're probably going to go with Shane. So this is a case where I'm, yeah, I am totally fine with that, and I'd be okay with the Academy picking any of the three because they are good entries for their time and it's just which genre was the zeitgeist recognizing at that point and you know this is eight years after the end of world war ii we are looking at the korean war yeah the korean war came it had ended about a month before this movie came out so even though this movie is about world war ii rather than the korean war I can still imagine a lot of emotional resonance mm-hmm. with people just coming out of wartime. So yeah, I have no issues with this coming out of the top pick overall in history. No, and it's it's a great it's a great film example of don't judge a book by its cover because I I can honestly say I've had other opportunities to watch it and I've deferred because I thought. You know, Burt Lancaster, Deborah Carr, kissing on a beach. Who who needs that? Um, but that is not what this film is. No, that the fact that that yeah, that is a famous image, and I get why it's in the marketing as the source of that image. But that judging this movie based on that scene alone, it is not at all representative. Well, I won't say not at all representative, but it's just. Mm-hmm. It, it's representative of that subplot, but that's even it's not even the A plot, that's the B plot. I agree, but one of the things that Zinneman does so well with this film, and maybe some of it's down to the screenplay, is it's hard to classify the A plot and the B plot here. No one seems lesser than the other. Yeah, I think classifying the A plot and B plot here would just... I mean, it, you might have to go down to actually count minutes of runtime, or I mean, in the in the novel, it might be a slightly different balance with the page count, because there were elements trimmed. All right, so shall we just talk about who we would recommend this to, and then let people know what to expect next month? Sure, I'm going to just I'm I'm going to recommend this. If you like noir, you should check this film out. I'm by no means an expert of the genre, but I, it being in a military setting uh, was fresh, at least at least for me. If you just enjoy good drama, I mean, yes, there are themes here that are probably inappropriate for kids. Let's, I'm just going to pick a number, 16 and, or, you know, younger than 16, but we're we are reaching the point to where we're hitting a lot of films that have survived the test of time 
and, and rightly so. You, you know, From Here to Eternity is up there with Casablanca to where the name of the film still means something. So, you know, I, I definitely think this should be on everybody's to-watch list. Yeah, I I would say that as well. It's not what I would have anticipated or expected. Yeah, it is a truly excellent film that has a military setting, but it's not entirely about the military. There are a lot of elements here. It is a wartime film. It is not a war film. There is one battle sequence that is maybe five to ten minutes long out of a two-hour movie. Yes, it's really in the climax. Like, this ends when, at least from the American perspective, the war begins. All right. So then, next month, we are going to be looking at the winner of the 27th annual ceremony. So this is On the Waterfront. So, and the other nominees were Stanley Kramer's version of the Kane Mutiny with Humphrey Bogart, Jose Ferrer, Van Johnson, and Fred McMurray. The Country Girl with Bing Crosby, Grace Kelly, and William Holden. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which is, you know, directed by Stanley Donan. And Three Coins in the Fountain. There are a few there that I've heard good things about and some that I have personally seen and can vouch for. So join us for that next month. And as you are already aware, we do have a Patreon running now. So there are our rewards for... You know, just general support for all of the shows that I'm a part of, including this one with some tailored rewards specifically to this podcast, where we can be joined by the Patreon supporter to discuss whatever film that Patreon supporter wants to discuss. So you can check that out at our Patreon page, which is just patreon.com slash Blaine's Bureau 42 Podcasts. No apostrophe in Blaine's, and 42 uses the numerals 4-2, and not the full word. Okay. So, did you have any closing thoughts there, Trey? Just looking forward to next month. One of my favorite actors enters the rotation on in On the Waterfront with Rod Steiger, so that should be a good conversation. Okay. Yes, and we'll, and we'll also then, I guess coincidentally, complete the motion picture filmography of Arthur Keegan. All right, so thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir, I want some more.